And I think that's it. We are in Mark chapter 14, which we started last week. And there's a lot going on. Um, it's always hard for me because I look at the, a chapter, and, and especially as we start getting towards the end of the gospel of Mark, or any of them, there's so much taking place uh, that it's hard to go, okay, we're going to stop halfway through. We're going to stop three-quarters of the way through. And so all that to say, we're going to finish off chapter 14 today, and there's just a lot here. So <laughs> hopefully I'm not moving too quickly over any of these, thi- these things. Uh, the beginning of the chapter, the first half of the chapter last week, is when we saw that beautiful act of worship from Mary, the anointing at Bethany, where uh, Jesus is at this dinner, probably a celebration dinner, uh, and, and we know from the Gospel of Luke that Martha was there serving, Lazarus was a guest, and that it's Mary who came in with this anointing oil and, and broke this flask and poured it over Jesus. And we talked about how much value that had. This was probably her life saving wherever it came from we don't know but this would have been like her stability her financial security for the rest of her life uh whether she were ever to be married or not um and she pours it all out on jesus her whole future and so much such a great act of worship but it's also good for us to realize that people are not going to get it that when we take a take a step and and just pour ourselves out for the lord a lot of times people are not going to get it And in that case, it was the disciples that began to grumble, led by Judas, saying, why wasn't this sold and the money given to the poor, which he was only out for poor Judas anyway. But um, Jesus deals with them, puts them in their place, reminds them that, or explains to them that this is actually for his burial, that she unknowingly is anointing him for his coming death and burial. And then uh, Jesus goes on to lead them in in the Last Supper, the the Passover meal for them. But he gives it not only new meaning, he gives it its true meaning. And we talked about that last week, the importance of understanding that when Jesus said, take this bread, this is my body. He wasn't saying the bread from the Passover, from this point on, I want you to think of it as my body. He's saying, this has always been my body. This is always about my body broken for you. It's what it's always been in the Passover meal. This wine, this cup, it isn't the blood that was put over the doorpost. It's my blood shed for you for the new covenant. It's always been that. And so he gives this revelation. Again, they didn't understand it, but that's what he was doing. And then he goes on to tell them that things are going to get really bad really quick. That he's going to be betrayed by one of them. He's going to be arrested, and and it's all going to happen that night. And, of course, they're all like, well, you know, we're here for you. We got you. And he's like, no, you're going to abandon me. And Peter's like, no, never. I would die with you rather than deny you, right? And now we see it all come about just as Jesus said it would in the second half of the chapter. So let's pray one more time, and we'll get into it. God, thank you. Thank you for your love for us. That as we come to the end of the Gospel of Mark, it is your love that stands out above everything else. That you would face this treatment. That you would put yourself through this torture and go to the cross for us. 
God, help us to hear it, understand it in a new way, to a new depth, that we would know your great love for us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. So starting in verse 32 of chapter 14. It says, Then they came to the place which is named Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, Sit here while I pray. And he took Peter, James, and John with him and began to be troubled and deeply distressed. And then he said to them, My soul is exceedingly sorrowful, even to death. Stay here and watch. And he went a little further and fell on the ground, and he prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. And then he came and found them sleeping. He said to Peter, Simon, are you sleeping? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray, lest you enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, he went away and he prayed and spoke the same words. And when he returned, he found them asleep again, for their eyes were heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. And then he came a third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? It is enough. The hour has come. Behold, the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise and let us be gone. See, my betrayer is at hand. Now again, the intensity of what's taking place, in some ways to me, as intense as the cross is, this is the the intensity that that Christ faced here in the garden is, is... so important that we get our minds kind of wrapped around right we can't understand everything that he was going through but as he he takes the disciples to uh the garden there on the mount of olives and uh it says or he says to them my soul is exceedingly sorrowful even unto death that phrase that greek phrase for exceedingly sorrowful means the greatest possible or to the full extent or to the greatest measure In other words, there isn't anything more. That's all there is. There could not be one percentage more of sorrowfulness or the amount that it it is on Christ at this point. And to me, as close as I can come to relating with this, and again, it's not even in the ballpark, but when you have a major event or a major conflict, you know something is going to take place. There is something about being on the, the lead of that prior to that. The pregame jitters of that event are worse than actually being in it, right? If you know that you're going to have a very serious conflict with somebody, I'll, I'll stay up all night long worrying about it. I'll, my, I'll have butterflies and be nervous, but once it's on, it's on. And there's almost a relief once it starts, right? This is Christ before the most important event ever. And again, as many scholars who have tried to summarize or or put into human language what Christ is about to face, we simply can't get it. We cannot understand the things that he will face um, on the cross. And so when he speaks of, of this cup passing, 
It is, it's everything. Some people say, well, it's, you know, the physical trauma of crucifixion. I think that's good for us to know as much as we can about what happened, right? But it's so much more than that. It is God, the eternal son, being completely separated from God, the eternal father. That they have known each other throughout all history past and had this intimate connection that, again, we can't understand how the Trinity truly works. But to be removed from God the Father is the price of sin. Jesus understands that. And as he prays that this cup, this cup of suffering, would pass from him, he knows that once these events stop, once these events start, there is no stopping them, right? This is, if, if there is any chance that the cross can somehow pass by and, and mankind still be saved, this is the last opportunity for it as he prays these things. Luke, in, in Luke chapter 22, as he records the same event, he says that Christ uh, actually began to sweat great drops of blood which now we know is a, is a physical condition of somebody under that extreme, extreme stress. It's rare, but that's what it's caused from. And that's, again, physically where Jesus is at. And he calls out, verse 36, and he said, Abba, Father, which is a very intimate, very tender way of speaking to your Father. All things are possible for you. Take this cup away from me nevertheless not my will but your will be done again the importance of what the cup or that hour that is upon him means Uh, there's a couple important things also that we need to understand about this prayer i think it answers some hard questions for us a couple things that that are out there that i believe people misunderstand prayer And one of them is that if you pray the right prayer and you have enough faith, you will always get an answer of yes from God. That you just need to work it up. You just need to believe it enough. And if you believe it enough that that God is obligated to give you the answer you ask for. And they misquote verses. They take them out of context to try and back up that idea. But understand, Jesus prays this exact same prayer three times. It could not be more heartfelt. It could not be filled with more faith. It could not have been worded any better. And it could not have been prayed by a person more worthy of receiving a yes answer. And yet he gets a no. I've even heard people say that to say, your will be done, is is a cop-out. It's a chicken. It's a thing that only cowards do because they don't have enough faith to believe that God's going to do exactly what they've asked. Um, Well, I'll be in that camp because that's what Jesus prayed. Not my will, but yours be done. Now, if Jesus prayed that, then I believe that's exactly how we need to pray as well. We think we know what's right. We think we know what the best thing is. And maybe it's in some huge thing like the, the healing of a loved one or it's, you know, who knows what it might be. Or it could be in the small things as well. We don't really know. And to say, God, you know all things. I trust your sovereignty and your wisdom above my own. Not my will, but yours be done. I think that is the right heart 
of prayer and to understand that no matter how heartfelt or prayer faith-filled our prayer is, we need to be willing to receive a no as an answer. The other thing that I think this answers very clearly is a teaching that is, is all over the place, right? But the idea is that there are many roads to heaven, that if you are sincere, you're going to go to heaven. It doesn't matter what you believe, doesn't matter what faith you belong to, doesn't matter what you, you know, religious books or traditions, it doesn't matter, everybody goes to heaven. Or they might even back up a little bit and say, most faiths go to heaven. There are many ways to get there. This tells me there is only one. Because here Jesus is praying for just one other option than the cross. Just even one other way that mankind can be saved. That all-knowing, all-powerful, holy and eternal God could come up with one other possibility that this cup might pass from him. And again, we see that no other way is given. This is it. This is the one and only way. And, and that offends people. They're like, how can you say there's only one way to heaven? Because before this, there was none. There was zero. We were all on a ship in the middle of the sea that was burning and sinking. And it was Christ that said, I'll give everything to give you one way. To make the one way that there, there, wa- there wasn't before. And while I understand why people are offended, I'm not concerned with them being offended. <laughs> because there is one. But there is only one. Now again, in this, this huge, heavy time of Jesus going through all of these things, he comes back to the disciples, and they are asleep. And I, I tell you, I think all of us kind of read this and goes, man, those lazy bums. You know, can't they just, this is like the one thing Jesus is like, hey, boys, stick with me on this. And they're like, yeah, <laughs> and go to sleep. And, and we're like, what's wrong with them? Why can't they do it? But we also need to understand all that's going on with them. Again, not to make excuses for them, but understand that they have been on an emotional roller coaster. That while they see these great things happening, like the triumphant entry, which is just a few days before this, and these amazing things that Jesus has taught and revealed and and seems like he's dealing with the religious leaders, on the other side of it, Jesus is telling them things are about to go horribly wrong. And so they get this like, yay, everything's great. No, everything's terrible. No, everything's great. (laughs) Everything's terrible. And even at the Last Supper, as they're getting this incredible time with Jesus, and he, and he speaks of these amazing things. You know, you look at the, the Last Supper and all of the Gospels gives us this picture of what's going on, but then he also speaks of these heartbreaking things that are about to take place. And so they see Jesus' anguish. They see the things that he's going through, and I'm sure it was heartbreaking for them, but they couldn't do anything about it. There is something I know for me personally that when you see someone you love going through very hard difficulties, Man, it just seems to like suck the life out of you. You're defenseless. I, I don't think I've ever felt more useless than our three children being born. I was like, you're doing great, babe. You know, <laughs> I'm, I'm useless here. I realize that. Everybody realizes it. But 
it's that, that feeling of like, I see someone I love going through this terrible time, and I can do absolutely nothing to help, right? In fact, Luke, again in chapter 22, says that they were sleeping from sorrow. I think that's an important point, that they were exhausted emotionally. They were sleeping from sorrow. They weren't just being lazy. They weren't just like figuring, ah, oh, Jesus will be fine, and we'll take a little nap while he's doing his thing. They, they were heartbroken and, and didn't know what to do about it. Now, the third time Jesus comes back, and there's a difference, right? The first times that he prays, there is this brokenness, and there's this, like, pleading for God to, to bring another way if this is possible. But when he comes to the disciples this third time, he's resolved. Verse 34, or 42, he says, rise, let's be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. The cup could not pass. And it's clear, this is the Father's will. And so Jesus is just like, nope, it's on. This is the beginning of those events right now. As Judas and the boy, his, his clan, group, come up the, the path towards where they are staying. So verse 43 goes on. It says, immediately... While he was still speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, with a great multitude with swords and clubs, came from the chief priests and the scribes and elders. Now his betrayer had given them a signal, saying, Whoever I kiss, he is the one. Seize him and lead him away safely. As soon as he went up, excuse me, uh, as soon as he had come, immediately he went up to him, and said to him, Rabbi, Rabbi, and kissed him. And then they laid their hands on him and took him. And one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. Then Jesus answered and said to them, Have you come out against a robber with swords and clubs to take me? I was daily with you in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. But the scriptures must be fulfilled. And then all forsook him and fled. Now a certain young man followed him, having a linen cloth thrown around his naked body. And the young men laid hold of him, and he left the linen cloth and fled from them naked. Judas and his group come up. And this is one of those that it could have been done in a mocking way, or it could have just been a false sign of respect, but to call him rabbi and then to give them a kiss on the cheek, these are both very important signs of respect. Like you just didn't refer to just anybody as a rabbi. It's like my rabbi, my teacher, right? And then to kiss someone on the cheek, again, is a, is a sign of that respect and of love. And so w whether he was doing it in just an absolute mocking way or, or whatever, I, I guess it doesn't matter. I just always try and picture how it went down. And like I said, this is, this is the storm arriving. Jesus praying is, is waiting for it to hit, and this is when it hits. This is when these events all go into to play, and they will not be stopped. Again, the Father showing that this is the only way to save mankind. They grab Jesus, arrest him. And I, I also think it's interesting that there had to be a sign given to identify Jesus, Right? That though he'd been teaching in the temple, though people knew about him, 
They didn't know him by sight. You know, there wasn't this like aura around him. He didn't glow wherever he went. There, there wasn't anything about him, which is exactly what Scripture in the Old Testament tells us. There's nothing that would, we would be drawn to him. He blended into a crowd like that, right? And so even when it came time to arrest Jesus, they weren't ex- exactly sure who they were looking for by his face. But they do arrest him. Verse 47 says that one of those who uh, stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. Uh, the other Gospels tell us without a doubt, this is Peter. And, uh, and it's no small thing. I mean, again, we kind of, I picture Peter like spazzing out and grabbing a sword and just flailing, you know, and accidentally hits this guy. But for him to draw his sword at all in front of this group of armed men that's expecting a fight, pretty brave or stupid. It's hard to tell sometimes, right? <laughs> but he does it. He, he actually jumps out with a sword against a group of guys, and no one else draws a sword either. Like, <laughs> Peter draws his sword and jumps out, and everyone steps back like, Ugh. okay, Peter. And he takes a swing at somebody. It's a life or death decision that he makes right there. That most likely, I mean, if he had run the, the numbers in his head, him doing that meant his death. There was no walking away from it. Yet he did it anyway. I believe Peter thought that this was his defining moment. That, that when Jesus had told him, you will all deny that you know me. You will all separate yourselves from me. Peter goes, not I. Even if all these guys do, I won't. He goes, Peter, not only are you going to separate yourself from me, you're going to deny you know me three times. No, I won't. Even if I have to die with you, I'll lay down my life. And here he is attempting to lay down his life. But this is not his defining moment. This is not the warning that Jesus had given him about the temptation that was coming towards him. The reason he needed to stay awake, awake and pray in the garden was not for Jesus' benefit. It was for his benefit that he would not fall into temptation. And that temptation is not this moment. Now, again, though Peter was brave in doing this, it's all in his strength. It's all in his pride. And that'll be the very thing that causes him to fail like all of us, right? Jesus points out the fact that what they're doing, they know is wrong. That this group who's come to arrest him, if, if he was guilty of anything, they would have arrested him in the temple. He's like, you've, you've come out against me as though I'm a robber with clubs and swords and a mob at night, which is a big deal, to arrest someone at night. And he goes, I was, I was in the temple every day. You could have arrested me then. And it, it's just a very subtle way of Jesus saying, you guys know you're wrong as well. Right? He's bringing out the fact that if they were justified in what they were doing, it would have happened in daylight in the temple. Um, now, again, I think looking at this, you know, I empathize a little with the disciples because their plans of what Jesus was going to do were so different than what he's actually going to do. And I think very often we, we are in that same place. We think we're so sure, oh, Jesus, hey, I've got my whole 10-year 
plan figured out, and, and I'm pretty sure you're on board with it. And so maybe it's only our one-year plan. We're going, oh, Lord, I know what you're going to do here, and I'm, I'm all for it. Let's do it. And the plans that we have are not the plans that he has. Very often his plans are going to go in a completely opposite direction, taking us through valleys we never would have chosen on our own. The good news is, and again, I believe that the next couple chapters here in, in the Gospel of Mark prove this, that though we have to go through some very dark times, the end result is more beautiful than we could imagine, right? That Jesus has been warning them of his arrest and warning them of his, his betrayal and the cross and his, he'll die, and, but then he's going to rise again. And he's going to bring salvation to all mankind as a result. Now, there's, and then after this, after Jesus is led away, there's this like quick little random note in verse 51 about this young man who didn't have anything on but a blanket. And then they tried to arrest him, grabbed his blanket, and he took off naked into the woods or whatever. And you're like, why would you mention that? <laughs> Seems super random. You already said everybody left. According to church history, this is Mark referring to himself. That Mark was a very young man at this time and, and came in at the very end of Jesus' ministry. Uh, we'll see more of him when we get into the book of Acts. John Mark is the other thing he's referred to. But he's the writer of this gospel. And most likely, again, according to church history, this is Mark referring to himself. That though he wasn't one of the disciples, he was there at the arrest. And just kind of him saying, I was there and I ran off with everybody else. Right? And I think that's a pretty, pretty brave thing for the, him to write. You know, though he doesn't give himself a name, everybody knew that he was referring to himself. Um, all right, verse 53. It says, And they led Jesus away to the high priest. And with him were assembled the chief priests, the elders, and the scribes. And Peter followed him at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest, and sat with the servants and warmed himself at the fire. Now the chief priests and all the council sought testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but found none. For many bore false witness of him, but their testimonies did not agree. Then some arose and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple made with hands, and within three days I will build another temple made without hands. But not even then did their testimonies agree. Again, looking at all the Gospels, there's a lot going on here. Um, Jesus is arrested, and he actually goes through a whole series of trials, right? He goes to uh, the high priest Annas, who was the old high priest. And then there was a new high priest, Caiaphas. It was actually Annas' son-in-law that Rome had installed, which they weren't supposed to do, but they did it anyway. Um, and so he went to a trial before Caiaphas, and then Herod, and then finally Pilate. Uh, and with all of these, they were done in a very wrong way, which we'll look at in just a minute. But Peter followed him at a distance. And right into the courtyard. And we don't know what Peter's thought process was. There's a lot of guesswork of what maybe he was doing, what his motiva 
motivations were. But again, it's all conjecture. It's all opinion. We really don't know. Other than Matthew tells us that he wanted to see the end, right? But even that's pretty vague. You know, he could have been, you know, plotting a jailbreak. How are we going to get Jesus out of this? Or what's going to happen? Or do we even need to save him? Is, is he going to be released? But he was following just to see what was going to happen. Um, but his biggest mistake is that he was following Jesus at a distance. I believe that's the biggest mistake people make today. You know, they want to follow Jesus, but not too close. We don't want to be right next to him. We'll keep him at a, just a little bit of a distance, you know. And, and I, I think we see it in a lot of ways in our society, and I, I know we're all guilty of it at different times, that we just want to give him enough, but not everything. Jesus can have this, but not that. He can have Sunday, but I get the rest of the week. We like to have him close when it's our benefit, and we keep him at a distance when it's not. Too often, that is the kind of life that is promoted, even within some churches. The safest place for us to be is as close to the shepherd as possible. The lambs that wander off are easy to pick up. Now, when it came to the trial that's taking place, like I said, a lot of things, were, a lot of laws, their own laws were being broken. And I know we went through this and we went through Matthew, but I think it's important uh, for us to understand what's happening here in a legal sense according to their laws. Uh, Israel had established some great laws about convicting someone and about a trial. First of all, it had to take place during the day. The idea that doing something at night was you were trying to hide something. The, the things, people were moved in and out under darkness was, was uh, not allowed. It had to, the trial had to take place during daytime so that nothing could be hidden. It had to take place in the official place of legal trial. And we see with all of these, it's happening everywhere else but there. It's happening at Caiaphas' house and Annas' house and, and Herod's court and this court and that court. But it's not taking place where it's supposed to. Um, no criminal trial could take place during Passover, meaning the season of Passover. So the few days before and the actual time of Passover itself, which is exactly the time that's taking place right now, that, uh, and no decision could be reached on the day of the trial. So when the trial was complete, they gave 24 hours before a verdict was cast. And the idea of that was that it would allow the emotions to fall and mercy to rise. That's a great, <laughs> that's a great law. And instead, they will come up with an answer immediately. Uh, and of course, they had to have the testimony of two or more witnesses. Those testimonies had to be perfectly in line, and they weren't allowed to talk to each other. So if you had two witnesses of an event, they separated them, brought them in, interviewed them separately, and those stories had to align perfectly. If they didn't, it was false testimony. Also, by giving false testimony, your life was forfeit. So a lot of encouragement to tell the truth. And again, everything that's happening here is completely opposite, right? It's taking place at night. It's not in the official place. They're actively searching for false witnesses. They know these things aren't true. They just want a couple of them to get close, and they can't even do that. 
And of course, no, no penalty is brought against any of these false witnesses at all. And then finally, they will make their judgment right then when it's over. And finally, the false testimony comes out of, of misquoting Jesus, saying that he's going to destroy the temple and rebuild a new temple without hands. Which, at, at its very worst, even if it's like, okay, that's exactly what he said. He was talking about the temple. He's going to destroy it and build a new one. The very worst accusation they could have against him is vandalism. And that's <laughs> really, I mean, that's it. He's not murdering anybody. It's, it's destroying a building. But of course, even then, their testimonies did not line up. Verse 60. It says, And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, saying, Do you answer nothing? What is it that these men testify against you? But he kept silent and answered nothing. Again, the high priest asked him, saying to him, Are you the Christ? the Son of the Blessed. And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man sitting on the right hand of the power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And then the high priest tore his clothes and said, What further need do we have of witnesses? You have heard the blasphemy. What do you think? And they all condemned him to be deserving of death. And then some began to spit on him and to blindfold him, and to beat him. And they said, prophesy, and the, officers of the, and the officers struck him with the palms of their hands. Now as Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came, and when she saw Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, you also were with Jesus of Nazareth. But he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you are saying. And he went out to the porch, and the rooster crowed. And the servant girl saw him again and began to say to those who stood by, This is one of them. But he denied it again. And later, those who stood by said to Peter again, Surely you are one of them, for you are Galilean, and your speech shows it. And he began to curse and swear, I do not know this man whom you speak, of whom you speak. And the second time the rooster crowed. And Peter began, excuse me, and Peter called to mind the words of Jesus that he had said to him, Before the rooster crows twice, you will deny you know me three times. And when he thought about it, he wept. Now, the high priest sees that things are not going his way and that Jesus is not falling for all the tricks and traps and, and the false testimony. And so he just flat out asks him there in verse 61, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed One? And Jesus says, I am. And I, I, to me, I, I, just, I would love to watch the replay of that moment where without any doubt, no hesitation, not a parable, Jesus just looks at this guy and goes, Yes, I am. I'm the one that you're supposed to be looking for. I'm the one that you're supposed to be waiting for. I am the Son of God, the Son of the Blessed One. Now, for anyone else who had spoken those words, it would have been blasphemy. And according to the Old Testament, they would have been deserving of death. But because Jesus, in fact, is the Messiah, he must tell the truth. 
right? It would be wrong for him to deny it. It would be wrong for him to not answer clearly at this point. But then he also adds, while these guys at the moment sit in the judgment seat over him, that he says, and you will see the Son of Man sitting on the right hand of the power coming on the clouds of heaven. This is Jesus saying, right now, you think you're judging me. But there's a day coming, and I will judge you. There's a day when you will realize how very wrong you were. They will see Jesus in his glory on the day of judgment. Now again, they ignore that warning. They ignore what he says. They shout blasphemies, deserving of death. And they begin to spit on him and hit him and beat him. And I cannot help but be overwhelmed by the absolute patience and love of God right here. Almighty, powerful God. Jesus Christ. Earlier in another gospel, he tells Peter, hey, put your sword away. Don't you think I have legions of angels just waiting to protect me? And at this moment, I remember those legions of angels going, let us at him. Just let us go. All mankind, gone. But the patience and the love of Jesus Christ to endure it all. To let these tiny men believe that they are in judgment over him. Meanwhile, Peter is still in the courtyard outside of where all this is happening. And his defining moment arrives. But it's so much more subtle than what he thought. And I think this is a good warning for us. You know, I, again, putting myself in Peter's place, you get that warning and you're picturing, you know, the, the town mob around you and everybody's going, deny Jesus. And you're like, never. And, you know, super brave. And it's not like that. Temptation is so much more subtle than that, right? Maybe there's that one little uh, tiny event in our lives where we're put in a corner and told to deny Jesus, but the rest of our lives, temptation is subtle. So subtle that Peter doesn't even realize he's done it the first two times. He doesn't even know that he's fulfilling what Jesus had said perfectly. You will deny me. doesn't even register. Verse 67, the servant girl asks him, you also were with Jesus. And Peter says, I don't even know what you're talking about. I don't know who or what you're talking about. And just moves on. Again, who knows what Peter's thinking? Is he just trying to get front row seats to see what, how it's all going to end up? Does he think he's going to somehow have an opportunity to save Jesus? We don't know. And honestly, it doesn't matter. What is the danger of him saying, yeah, I know Jesus. I'm, I'm there with him. What's the danger of Peter going, I'll be close to my shepherd even now? Well, the, the worst danger is, is that if he's found guilty by this court, they'll take it to Rome. And if Rome finds him guilty, then Jesus and all of his followers will be crucified. Maybe that's what he's afraid of. Same servant girl. Talks to him again. Talks to the people around him. Verse 69. And the servant girl saw him again and said, this is one of them. But again, he denied it. And the group starts to get suspicious. And, and 
Peter's dialect, the way that he says things, his accent tells them all that he's from Galilee. And they say, surely you are one of them, for you are a Galilean. Your speech shows it. And he began to curse and to swear. I do not know this man of whom you speak. And the second time the rooster crowed. Now, now it hits Peter all at once. Right? But again, this is how, how temptation is. It comes in slow and it's subtle and it just turns up the heat a little bit at a time until we're like, oh my gosh, how did I get here? Right? Following Jesus at a distance. That's how we get there. Every time. And I think Peter and the disciples are a great example. The other disciples, they're gone. They've taken off. But I think, again, it's important we're not too hard on them to go, well, I'd never do that. Oh, yes, we would. Every one of us. There's no doubt they love Jesus. They want to do the right thing. It's just not in them. That as long as they or we are trying to do it in our own strength, in our own wisdom, our own ability, oh, I would never do that, Lord, never. Then we take down the defenses in that area. And it's just a matter of time before we fail in that area. Not being honest with him, not being honest with ourselves about how weak we really are and how desperately we need him. Giving up on our strength, leaning on him all the more. Man, we cannot afford to follow Jesus at a distance. He is the good shepherd. He is the one that, man, like no one else, we can be right next to and absolutely trust him to lead us, even if it's into the valley of the shadow of death. He is worthy to be followed close. Amen? Amen. Let's pray.